0: If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to 1 Thessalonians, in the epistle in the New Testament. I'm going to read verses 2 to 10 in that book. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Thessalonica, which is a city in Macedonia in modern-day Greece, about what it means to follow and know and believe in Christ, and to persevere in him to the end. Verse 2. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember, before God, in, our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering, with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Um, this is the second sermon I'm preaching on these verses. So if you didn't hear last week, I encourage you to look at that one. Um, this whole series out of 1st Thessalonians we're calling imitators and examples, because if you look at the theme of this chapter in the following chapters, what the Apostle Paul is emphasizing so that people would be assured in their faith, but also persevering in their faith, is that he wants us as believers in Jesus to be imitators of Christ by imitating Jesus' examples. Because you can't hang out with Jesus literally and imitate him directly embodied as a human being. He rose from the dead. He's at the right hand of God. We are left to— follow the the example and imitate the example of those who are his now embodied believers who are imitating Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so in order to follow Jesus, we can attend to his written word, but we also have to imitate the examples he gives us in Christ. The gospel is transmitted through the word written, but it's also transmitted through the people of God as imitators and examples. Now, he explicitly says this in chapter one when he says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. So notice, imitating the apostles and imitating the Lord were one and the same, right? And then he said, because of this and what that did in you, you became an example or a model to all the believers in the whole region in which they live, Macedonia and then Achaia. What he's saying is is that for all of us, Jesus' goal for us in the church, universal, manifested in the local church, is that we would— Come to Jesus and imitate him by imitating his examples, and so become examples ourselves to others. Now, that was all of last week, if you want more on that. So you can ask the question then, okay, but what do we imitate, Nick? How do we know? Because surely there are bad people to imitate at local churches and who say that they're Christians. So what do we imitate, right? Um, one of the farmers I like is a guy named um, Joel Salatin, and he's like a, he, call, he calls us a beyond organic farmer. Um, and what they do is they try to create like a— environment or an ecosystem on their farm that's maximally healthy, that treats— that brings out the chicken and the chickens, the pig and the pigs, and so on, right? Which is very different from commercial farming, which is like you get as many chickens in a place as you can possibly get. Now listen, I am in awe of commercial chicken farming, okay? I think it's disgusting, but it does produce produce multiple billions of chickens, okay? And I, I am impressed by that. Don't get me wrong. But commercial chickens select for plumping. That's all they select for. The the chicken that puts on weight the fastest is the chicken. And if you have to keep them alive with antibiotics, and if you have to feed them weird food, and if they look weird, and if they could never survive outdoors, it doesn't matter because you just got to get them through eight weeks to butcher them, and that's all there is to it, right? And so you select for plumping alone, right? Salton's like, that's so dumb. (laughs) He's like, I select for survival. Yeah, we we want chickens to plump and have meat on them, but we want chickens that can walk around and then have immune systems. And like, we almost never have to have a veterinarian. We never feed our chickens antibiotics. Like, because our chickens are chickens and they walk around and they are selected for thriving survival, right? You See, choosing what you're selecting for matters in terms of what you get. Right? There's a lot of people who claim to be Christians who really are just kind of puffing themselves up as, much, as fast as they can, acting as Christian as possible, maybe even trying to get attention about how Christian they are, especially if they're looking for a spouse, maybe, or a position in the church, or a position of respect. And the and plumpers don't last, man. They're only supposed to last six or eight weeks. They can't survive outdoors in the natural habitat on their own. It's great for rotisserie chickens. It's bad for long-term survival right? What, what we're looking for is thriving survival, right? Flourishing perseverance. You want to look at somebody who has the kind of faith that not only per- was going to persevere, or is predictably persevering, but is also thriving, right? Then the question is, okay, Nick, that's a little weird because doesn't that mean I have to see somebody die? Does that mean we can only imitate people who are already dead? Because it, perseverance is something we can't know absolutely till the end. I mean, lots of people have disappointed us over the years, right? That's true. But if you were going to run, like, let's say a 10k race, and I, and I said just before you start the race, okay, pace yourself on somebody who's going to do well and finish. Right? Because you, you weren't sure you were going to finish. You, you weren't super in shape. You'd be like, how do I know who's going to finish? We're all starting. And the answer is, you can tell a runner in about 150 yards. If you know what to look for. You can tell what is most likely the kind of person who's going to persevere running. And the same is true for Christians. And you can tell in the book of 1 Thessalonians because what Paul affirms, what, what he says, look, because this is true about you guys, it should assure your faith. And they he says, now do that more. Those are the key things. The things that he commends and then encourages them to do more and more are the things that assure because they are the things that are real faith and that will lead them to thriving faith, and will lead them to persevere in the faith, right? And so when you look at chapter one and the other, cha- and the other parts of the chapter, there's four things that come out really strongly. We're going to cover these over the next two weeks. The first is conversion. A complete and total conversion to Christ from idols that produces worship, a complete, complete reorientation of our values and our affections to God. That we love him, we want to serve him, and we're willing to wait on him, even in the midst of afflictions. Discipleship, the humility to imitate Christ entirely, and even to imitate his imperfect human examples. Because we so want to imitate him. And fourth, what I call martyrdom, because I don't like mission, evangelism, or witness very well, because they're not strong enough. Martyrdom is the willingness to tell the truth, no matter what's going to happen to you. That's what martyr is. Martyrdom is the Greek word for witness. It means specifically a courtroom witness, but a martyr is not just somebody who gets killed for their faith. Technically, what a martyr is is somebody who tells the truth no matter what's going to happen to you. And that's what these people have become. That is always a mark of persevering faith. So today we're gonna do the first two. So let's start with conversion. In verses 9 and 10, Paul explicitly says that what's happened in the Thessalonians has rung all over the world. And that is, that thing that rang out the world is the complete and absolute transformation when they believed in Jesus. They turned to God from idols so that they could serve the living and true God and they're willing to wait on him even when they wish he would hurry up and do the things they want him to do because they trust him. So you could say that the basic components of conversion are a full change or turning of the mind and heart, from idols, to serve or be devoted to the living God and true God, and to be willing to wait for him to fulfill our part in his plan and to let him work his out as he deems fit, because we trust him. Right? Now, part of the problem with the word conversion is that the word conversion is a word that people inherently, reflexively dislike, because they think of it as related specifically to religion, and they think that when people convert to religions, they get upset at other people of other religions or no religion, and so it leads to conflict. That's why places like India have anti-conversion laws, right? That's one of the reasons why people in secular cities like Madison tend to think of the word conversion with a kind of distaste, right? But it's, it's a really profound misunderstanding of the meaning of the word, right? Conversion, functionally speaking, is the opposite of bigotry. You can't hate both of those. You got to pick one. If you don't like conversion, you like bigotry. If you don't like bigotry, you've got to at least, in principle, before conversion. I'm going to say a lot more about this on the Ask Me Anything podcast this week, but let me just give you the short version right now. What conversion is, is the full change of mind based on persuasive evidence that warrants a change, right? So you have a view. You come across persuasive evidence, a sufficient amount that seems to warrant a change of mind, and so you do the virtuous thing. You believe the truth, and then you change your life accordingly, right? So for example, there are are a lot of people that believe—there's a lot of of people arguing right now about what is the right thing to do with the COVID-19 thing. Should we start to break the sequestration up because of its effects on the economy, or should we stay huddled together and sheltering at home so that we don't have a resurgence? which is right, right? And we all may feel very strongly about something, but if we realized that we were wrong and that we should change our mind to the other position, would we dig in our heels and come up with reasons to demonize the person who had brought the truth to us, or would we change our mind and believe the truth, right? Because bigotry is the refusal to change your mind after persuasive evidence that warrants believing that that your previous view was prejudicial has been given to you. So, you see, almost all of our beliefs are prejudicial technically, right? None of us have have completely and utterly investigated everything about almost anything that we believe. And so anything that we believe could turn out to be a prejudice. That is, we judged too soon because we judged before we got the information that would have changed our minds, right? So almost every view that I have could turn out to be prejudicial, right? Because that's all we might ever have. And so when we get information that that shows us that our view is prejudiced. We prejudge. We judge too soon. The question is, are we going to freely give up our prejudice and obey the truth, or at least what we think is the truth now, or are we going to say, no, you're wrong? You see, that's when prejudice becomes bigotry. When your prejudice is shown to be a prejudgment, you realize you should now make another judgment, and you refuse to do it. That's when prejudice becomes bigotry, because what should happen is conversion. Conversion is the noble, good, and virtuous action when our prejudices have been shown for what they are. And scripture teaches there's no greater prejudice than the human capacity to suppress the truth about God. The prejudice that we are good, God should do more if he even exists, we should be able to do what makes us happy, whatever that means to us, and that we should be in control of our lives. That is the greatest human prejudice. That— We are true, and God is a liar. And that is the great bigotry that damns us. That conversion undoes to create the most open mind a human can have in the best possible way. Right? Now, my argument tonight, today, is not to to then go on to give you the warranted evidence to believe in the gospel. I preach that almost every week. We talk about it all the time. What I want to focus on today is what conversion is. Okay? And what conversion is, is a transformation done by God that is supernatural and cannot be approximated by human effort or reformation. That's fundamentally important. It is one of the things that fundamentally makes Christianity a completely different religion than every other religion on planet Earth, except for arguably Judaism, in which it's connected. In—there's um, there, a program um, called Monk for a Month where, you know, if you're you're living a busy urban life and you really want to become more mindful and live a more healthy life and become a nicer person, you can pay some money and you can go and become a Buddhist monk in Tibet for a month. They'll shave your head. They'll give you robes. You'll learn about Buddhist teachings. You'll do meditation. You'll do all—and you'll be—for 21 days, you'll be a Buddhist monk, and then you'll go home. And the idea there is that you'll be cross-pollinated with some of the good things in Buddhism that will help you develop and reform as a person. You'll become a nicer, healthier, more mindful person. You'll be nourished by a religious tradition. If you don't have to believe in the religion, you don't have to become a Buddhist, right? And the assumption of this program is that that's actually true for all religions. They actually have programs where you can, like, kind of be Jewish for a little while and go to Israel and learn about some things there about the Jordan River and so on. Michael Lawrence Um, who wrote a book called Conversion, which I really would recommend. This will go really well with the next two weeks of sermons. It's a little book. It's like not that many pages, and it's only like half the amount of content on each page, but it'll really order your understanding of what I'm talking about today, which is fundamental to what real Christian faith is. Um, He says this about that, about that kind of view that that program is putting forward. The assumption is there's no need to become a true believer Rather, religions help people become better, nicer people. And any religion will do the trick. This assumption is why many people in the West have abandoned religion altogether. If the point is simply to be a better person today than I was yesterday, then why do I need any religion at all? You see, the high priests of becoming a better person are not the ancient religions of the world, but the counselors, the the psychologists. Psychology and technology— And where they come together, pharmacology, are the ways in which we become better people through the process of human-induced self-reformation in which we try to become better in our well-being, better in our mindfulness, and nicer people. That is not a bad pursuit. It's not a bad pursuit in a worldly way to be a less terrible human being or to become more mindful about how you're living your life or to become more healthy in how you live it. It has nothing to do with conversion and nothing to do with salvation and nothing to do with God and nothing to do with the gospel or Christian faith at all. Christian faith produces beneficial outcomes in all of those things, but none of those things are Christian faith. When scripture speaks of conversion, it talks about not a being nourished by a tradition, but a full acceptance and complete change that Jesus refers to as repentance and faith, the complete repudiation of the idolatry that comes before, and an absolute personal acceptance and transformation in the thing that you accept. It is—you become a complete believer. Right? The second is the gospel. What are you believing? you're not being, you're not working through a tradition like a salad bar and taking what you like and what you think will be reformative. You are embracing the whole of the message. He says, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, right, whom to wait for Jesus, the son he raised from the dead, and who you're waiting for when he returns, Jesus who saves us from the coming wrath. There's like nine doctrines in that, if not 10,000. And that's all accepted together. He's like, everybody knows you bought into all of it, the whole of the good news, the gospel. You believe it all, and that's what changed you. And then he says, on the basis of that, God has supernaturally changed you passively. You accepted it by faith, but God did a supernatural work that could not be done otherwise, and without God's supernatural work, there is nothing. Christianity is nothing. There is nothing. There is no salvation. There is no redemption without the supernatural work of God. And that is the most important thing. That is the fundamentally distinct thing. And then fourth, that God the Holy Spirit then is present with us to take that regenerative work and to move it towards completion. Right? If you look at how the Bible refers to what God does in the person who believes him for conversion, there are these metaphors of absolute dramatic change of stuff you could never do practically that are completely outside the capacity of human self-improvement. This is very important. It's all through the scriptures. In every place God changes people, he changes them beyond human capacity in a supernatural way. Whatever you believe about how you participate in spiritual transformation, it is predicated on the miracle of God that he works by his own power. So in John 3, three times Jesus says to Nicodemus, this is a very good man who has spent his whole life applying laws and becoming a better person. He says, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. Born of the spirit, not of the flesh. You shouldn't even be surprised that I'm telling you you have to be born again because it's fundamental to your own faith. You just don't see it. Right, and, and Nicodemus, like all human beings, found that statement very confusing. Right, then in Ephesians two it says, "You were dead in your transgressions and sin, but God made you alive in Christ." So coming alive from the dead, not generally something human beings can do. In 2 Corinthians five, he says, "In Christ you are a new creation; the old is gone, and the new has come." Something created from nothing. In Ezekiel thirty-seven. There's this whole family of there's this whole valley of corpses. And not just dead people, but completely rotted. There's nothing but bones brittle enough to break into smash into the dust. There's nothing left of them except the bones themselves. And God says to Ezekiel this prophet, He says, He says, Man of God, Son of Man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel gives a very diplomatic answer. He says, I, I mean, God, only you know that. And God says, you speak to them, and you tell them to come alive. Now notice, notice the necessary demand from God of human participation in the absolutely miraculous supernatural work of God himself. That combination is how conversion and regeneration go together. You must believe. It's like Ezekiel speaking. God commands him to speak, so Ezekiel says, come to life. Like, come alive. And then God does the work of moving the bones and— putting on ligaments and muscles and organs and tissue and skin and life and breath. He does it supernaturally, but the human being must participate. Similar in conversion, you must receive the supernatural work of regeneration, of being born again, of being made a new creation, of coming alive from the dead. That has to happen, and only God can do it. But you must speak the words of your own dead bones coming to life. You must say, in faith, I repent of my sins. God, I turn from dead idols, and I turn to you. Right? In Romans 6, it's being buried and raised from the dead. In Ezekiel eleven nineteen 19, and 36, 26, Paul, God says, in the future, what's going to happen, what I'm going to do in this new covenant with my Messiah, I'm going to take out a heart of stone that's in the heart of people, and I'm going to put it in a heart of flesh, a heart that can really beat. That miracle to take out the stone heart And to put it in a heart of flesh is a supernatural act of God we call regeneration. All of that, we just use one word in Christian theology, regeneration. The miraculous work of God that makes possible true reformation from the heart that can conform us into the image of his son. And all those metaphors are passive. You can't do them but you must participate in them through faith. And so, how do you you imitate this conversion? It is to, like all the believers that have come before you, you must yourself repent and believe too. You have to turn to God and say, I'm going to turn from all of my idols, all the things I think I need, to live and love and survive and to have the life I've need, the things that will keep me from being afflicted or to suffer, the things that will keep me in the good graces of the world, all of the, all the mountains of bigotries and prejudicial views I have that make me true God and you a liar, I'm going to throw all of these in the garbage, and I know some of them will remain, and over time you'll have to work more of them out of me, but all that I'm conscious of I throw in the garbage and I turn to you, the living and true God, to serve you, and to wait on you and to walk with you and to learn from you and to imitate your examples and to declare your worth. And, and you have to do that. That is, that is the demand, the first step of persevering faith, because you can't do any of the other things until you become a new creature, until God himself makes you a new creation through the power of his own spirit to give you a heart of flesh where there is a heart of stone. If you are out of taste for God, then you require this miraculous event. And the only way you can participate in it is if God gives you the grace to believe right now and you have the capacity to believe because he's giving that to you, then you need to seize that moment and you need to repent and believe right now. That's the only way you can participate in it. But you can't You can't say, God, I'll let you make me a nicer person. You can't say, God, I'll take a few things. You can't say, God, I will fulfill some parts of this, but I'd like a contract with you where you will do other things like me having a good job and not suffering and finding the mate I want and so on. My kid's turning out well. There's no—you can't be a terrorist with God and say, I'll do what's right if you meet my demands. No, you do what's right because it's right, and the God of the cosmos demands it rightly. And in response to you simply acknowledging that his mercy pardons and forgives all of your treasonous behavior, your idolatry, your hatred of him, your calling him a liar, and he forgives all of it because of the death of his son, because of Christ's brutal, murderous desecration on the cross. His act is imputed to you for your forgiveness, and his righteousness bound with you in your union with him. That is all supernatural. And there is no Christian faith, no perseverance, no spiritual thriving without it. There is just the languid failure of human effort. The second thing is—I'm gonna go through this a little bit faster—is worship, which is at the moment of conversion leads us to a new orientation to an ongoing taking pleasure in the beauty and glory of God. As we turn away from our idols and we turn to him with joy. And the scripture says that there's two main focuses here is that we, you have to turn to God from idols. The reason why we're out of taste for God is because we have been eating poisonous foods given to us by the idols that we worship. In the, the, the book, The Road to Wigan Pier by George Orwell, he goes into the northern coal mining communities of Britain, and he's among these people who are basically just personally desecrated by the work of coal mining. Their backs are broken. Their, their teenage kids are in the same bed, and they ultimately commit incest. They—tripe they, is their favorite food. And he talks about just the culinary r- realities. Nobody has a garden. Nobody even likes fresh food. They like the canned food better. They like the salted food better. The food that you would used to have to eat like on ships. They like it. There's there's people like that. There's kids. that have been taught to think McDonald's food is better than cooking at home. They've never even tasted an egg from a chicken that got to walk around, and they don't know the difference between a store-bought egg and a free chicken egg, and how different the color of the yolk even is. They have no idea. And similarly, the more we we drink from the spoiled cisterns of our idols, the more we try to hew out for ourselves some kind of nice life in our rejection of the God who made us for his good creation, and we, we work out in worldliness our own little contraptions, the more miserable we become, and the more tolerant of that misery we become, and therefore the more tolerant of simple and ridiculous and weak pleasures we become, And we become pleased with our poisons. And what Paul says is when you get a taste of the joy of the beauty of the glory of God in the gospel of his son, and you realize that was your destiny, and he's what you're created for, and you bear his image, and you're made for more than this, you will realize that pain and sorrow and grief are not the standard human emotion. They are the particular present one, but the cosmos is filled with joy and that you are now a participant, and heir of that joy. And what that means then is is that when you recognize that larger joy, you become less concerned about your present affliction no matter what it is. Right? It says in verse 6, You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit. You see, when regeneration happens— And God does the miracle of giving the heart of flesh, and the Holy Spirit enters into our life to bring that about. He brings in the joy of God, and when that happens, afflictions, even increased afflictions, because of our new identity in Christ, proportionately can't perform up to the joy of the glory of God. It's not that the afflictions aren't intense. They're often very intense. But in comparison— They don't overwhelm the joy. And And they are trials that become worth it and that ultimately bring meaning to our pursuit of God's joy and glory. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, we do not lose heart. This is while he's being imprisoned and beaten up and whipped and shipwrecked. We don't lose heart. That is, we persevere with thriving. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Notice, he doesn't just say that the comparison is off. He's saying our light and momentary troubles, which are extremely severe, right? He's using a euphemism here. These extremely severe trials, he says, are achieving for us an eternal glory. Not only is the glory of God capable of giving us joy so that we can overcome our sufferings, we recognize that bearing suffering beautifully is achieving for us a reward with God as he takes pleasure in us and loves to point out and to bring forward and to enjoy himself and to give back in relationship to what he values and he greatly values those who are his martyrs, that is, those who will do what's right in his name no matter what will happen to them, imitating him even in the midst a very difficult affliction. That's worship. And it is, it is the right declaration of the value of God, and it comes from joy. And if you struggle with worship, it may be that you struggle with joy. Joy specifically in God. In Romans, Paul says it this way. Now, if we are children, as children of God, we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings— in order that we may share in his glory, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Right? Edward said it this way, the regenerate person is someone who has been given a taste for God. Because conversion must always lead to worship. And worship fuels everything else. One of the reasons why you can't salad bar your way of Christian faith is that even in the practical work of God's reforming of us in godliness, The deep place in which the motivation comes is our valuing of God and not idols. That he's the living and true God. That's the very basis and foundation, which bubbles up in joy, which bubbles into worship, which orients all our needs, desires, satisfactions, and securities, so that from the inside out, we're transformed, and therefore our behavior is increasingly reformed. Let me end with just a couple quick stories about imitation. How do we imitate with this? Right? The, the apostle says in, in 1 Thessalonians, and, and uh, Lloyd's going to work on this in a couple of weeks. He says, you know, you guys, before I came and talked to you in Thessalonica, we were in Philippi, and they half beat us to death. And we were kind of scared it was going to happen in Thessalonica too, and it almost did. But in the midst of those afflictions, what? He had the joy of the Holy Spirit about the gospel that he told the Thessalonians the truth. He was a martyr. So in his discipleship, Out of a heart of worship, because he was deeply converted, he was a martyr. He told them the truth, so they got to receive it. And then he says at the end, he says, you know, you guys, because you're being mistreated by your countrymen, you are in the line from the first prophet all the way to the present, all the way to us. Right? He says, don't you see that all of the prophets, all the people God sent to his own people, the Jewish people, they killed them for converting to the truth, for worshiping God in his true value, for imitating God in what he told them to do, and for being a martyr, witnessing and telling the truth no matter what happened to them. And they killed the prophets. And then Jesus the Messiah showed up, and he was completely devoted to God in everything. He never had to get converted, but he had the full heart of faith. Right? And then he imitated the Father in everything. And then he worshiped God all the time, and then he told the truth until they killed him. And then Stephen and all the other martyrs, all the other witnesses, this has happened to us. And then he said, even the churches in Judea, all the churches that are in Israel are being persecuted by their own countrymen right now, and you're just like them. Don't you see there's this wider family of the afflicted joyful who you are a part of, and it's an incredible, it's an incredible privilege to be brothers and sisters with them, even if it means that you have shared concern with them. In Acts 16, the apostles had just come I think it was to Lydia—I can't think of the place— but they got thrown in prison, and they got whipped without a trial, and they got thrown in what um, the text of Acts calls the inner cell. Now, prisons in those days were dungeons, and so they got thrown in the room with no window is what that means. And it says that their feet were put into stocks. This is Acts 16, 25 to 28. So in just a few words, what the picture that Luke paints for us is, they're beaten half to death. Their wounds aren't treated because after what happens, happens. The first thing that the jailer does is has to have their wounds treated. So they're, beated, they, they're beaten. They have gaping, open wounds in a time where, I don't know, 30% of all people who died, died of infection. Right? So it's like they're sitting there just waiting for infection to enter their wounds so they can die. Right? Like that's part of the torture. They're in a— windowless, lightless room. They're in pitch black. They're essentially in solitary confinement. They can't even lay down because their feet are in stocks, because they're going to escape. Like, what are these guys, dangerous criminals? And what's their response? At midnight. (laughs) All those are true. It's midnight. They've been beaten half to death. What are they doing? It says at midnight, Paul and Silas were singing a hymn to God. Now think about this. What is the only good thing about being in the inner cell of a stone prison. Acoustics. That's it, man. I've been in them. Like, you go to tour in Israel, they'll take you into, like, this inner cell, and they'll have you sing a hymn in there because it sounds amazing. The only good about that pitch black, squalor, smelly, bloody, uncomfortable, cold abandonment is that the people who truly know Jesus and know his joy can see the one good thing— And offer it to the one good God. Sing a hymn. And they were martyrs because everybody else was listening to them. And at that moment, the power of God came and shook the whole place and did something of radical, supernatural, divine power for the redemption of people. Let me end with with this. Some some of you don't know, um, William Cooper was a poet who struggled with insanity in Britain in the 18th century. He, He was in and out of insane asylums, he came to faith. He struggled with depression his whole life, very severe depression. He wrote many hymns with Isaac Watts because that was part of the treatment Isaac Watts put on him. Cooper lived with him, and they wrote a hymn a day together to revel in the joy of the glory of God as a treatment for his depression. And he wrote some amazing hymns, and it helped him dramatically overcome his depression and to not succumb to his depression in the worst moments of his life. But more than that, he didn't just take joy in God. Out of his joy in God, he became one of the great poets, of which all of English poetic romanticism is based on. Many people believe he was the one who started it, because he saw romance in things like oak trees. One of his most famous poems is about an oak tree. He's walking around and sees this oak tree, and he's like, this is unbelievable. And he writes this really stirring, romantic, touching poem about the beauty of creation, the history bound up in this tree and what it had seen and who he was and how the death of Christ related to it at one point. I mean, just an unbelievable celebration of creation. And so not only did he revel in the joy of God through his conversion such that he could worship God and fight depression in the joy of God in terms of what he was struggling with as his person. In his theology, he could then see the beauty in creation all of the world too. Without worldliness, he could enjoy creation. And then, at that moment too, when very few British people could see it, he saw the horror of slavery. And some of his greatest poems was the moral awakening that came from the deep internal conversion, so that one of his greatest Poems Martin Luther King quoted all the time in the 1960s in the Civil Rights Movement because he wrote poem and became um, a movement person with an abolition like Isaac Watts. The the glory of the truth of the converting gospel that leads to worship changes people completely. And so I want to invite you as we celebrate communion, if you aren't a professing believer, as we do this, worship, this, this ritual of worship where we take the bread and the cup and we worship Christ as God, as the, the bread of our sustenance and the blood of the covenant who made us right with God and gave us the remission of sins, I want you to consider whether God is giving you the grace right now to believe. And if he is, I want to encourage you to throw yourself into that faith with, with all your weight by repenting and believing, turning from idols, everything you've put your hope in, apart from God, and putting your full hope in God, the one who is both true and living. So we're going to sing in just a second. Um, I'm going to give you a little time for reflection and prayer, and then we're going to take the communion elements. So let's, let's take a few seconds to prepare ourselves, and then I'm going to pray. as we take these elements and as we prepare to do this very simple, practical, physical thing to align our bodies with the faith that you have given us towards Christ, our Savior, and our example for imitation, we pray that you would would work in us by your Spirit and deepen our worship. And I pray for those of us who have not experienced the regenerative miracle of the new birth, that you would right now, through faith, be encouraging them to speak to you. Just like Ezekiel had to tell the dry bones to come to life for you to act with him. That they would say to you for their own coming back to life, God, I I turn from everything that wasn't for you, that was against you, that justified myself, and I turn to you wholeheartedly. The living and true God, the one who's sent the Messiah to die for my sins and to make me right with you, to reconcile me and to make me your own and to change me from the inside out, not from the outside in. In Jesus' name, amen.